Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. Lena Abu-Jamra here, and I am so glad you're back. Listen, if it's your first time here, welcome. If you've been here before, then you know that every week we get to spend time talking about uh, faith, life, culture, and all sorts of things. We are now in a series in the book of Hebrews, and I have heard some great things from you about it. It's called the Confidence Series, and I hope it's encouraging you. Hey, I've got some great news. My new book is out. Don't tell anyone you're reading this, uh, A Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. That's a whole lot of title, but it's really a great book about forgiveness and love and intimacy and sex. And so if you want to find out more about me, get the book. It's on Amazon, or you can find out about it at drlinabook.com. Honestly, everybody who's reading it is connecting with it. It's been really um, exceeding my expectations in in terms of its reaction from readers. And so um, this is a book that I was nervous to put out, but honestly, you guys have been so gracious and encouraging. And if you haven't read it, uh, do so, get it. I think you will not regret it. (laughs) That rhymed, all right. Uh, So uh, without further ado, let's hit the Hebrews study for today. And uh, uh, this is a 10-week study. We're now uh, well on our way here. I hope you can sit back and enjoy it. Or if you're out and about, uh, just listen up, pay attention, and let's pray that God moves in our hearts as we dig into his word and the spirit of God moves in us. Thanks again for checking in. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. We are in a study called The Confidence Series, and it's really sort of a like the whole point of Hebrews, remember, is to show the supremacy of Jesus, the fact that he is greater, he is better, he is supreme over all things, he is preeminent over all things, and everything that we have looked at through the book of Hebrews is pointing to that, written to an audience of Jewish believers, some maybe who weren't as strong in the faith, some who had not received Christ, so three different groups of people, not very much like probably who's watching this now, some of you all in, just need encouragement, going through maybe some seasons of difficulty, and maybe you feel like tempted like the Jewish believers were, to go back into your tradition. Look, you may not be from a Jewish tradition. So when you look at the Hebrew believers, they were uh, they had given their life to Jesus and their temptation was to look back on their traditions and to be like, yeah, maybe it wasn't so bad because their families and their culture was persecuting them. And, and I think for us, we tend to go back to our the old ways, whether you come from a background of, of, of church belief that may not be in line with scripture, or maybe you come from a non-atheist believing, non-believing background, or maybe, maybe you come from a Bible believing, but maybe legalistic background. Many people who grew up in the 80s and 90s have this bend of legalism. And so maybe that's what you struggle with. You bend this to go back to legalism. By the way, I think you're going to like today's lesson in that regard, but we're all tempted to go back to what is familiar, to what used to work, whereas Christ might be doing a new work in us. He might be doing a new thing in us. And so let's, as long as it's in line with scripture, let's embrace that. And so the whole book of Hebrews is sort of an encouragement for the people in that day to say, look, Christ is indeed better. You need to stick with this. Don't give up. Again and again, we see a perseverance, a call to perseverance to the saints. And so we've made our way sort of calling this the confidence series, because as you come to understand and believe that Jesus is better, what happens? Your confidence in him grows. You stop being shaken by every wind and doctrine. When you stop being one foot in, one foot out, you become a person of sound mind and and a person of commitment, a person who can face the difficult circumstances of life and still stand strong, knowing that you are worshiping a savior who is in control over everything. And so the subtitle of the series is how to fully trust God when I don't see the way. When we started looking at, you know, all of these features, I guess you could say of, of Jesus. And so the first week was like, Jesus, you know, we can be confident because he speaks, that God speaks to us through the word, through Christ is, is incredible. And then we went to, because he is in control. And chapter two t- actually says that specifically, that he is in control over everything always. 
And then we moved into the fact that Christ is faithful and then that he loves us. And last week we talked about how he does not lie. And today is sort of, I, I just really called it very simply, uh, we can be confident. And here's the, the title of today's teaching because he's better, because he's better, sort of a reiteration of what um, we have been focused on week after week and the teaching of Hebrews, the undergirding foundation of Hebrews that Jesus is indeed better. And we're going to look through, and, and though they look like long passages, really they have a sort of a, a theme of looking at how Jesus is better than uh, certain aspects of what was in the Old Testament. And we're going to walk through four of those things leading to the new covenant. Chapter eight is mostly a focus on the new covenant. If you're going like, I don't understand what that means. Don't worry, we'll, we'll get there. And, and, uh, and so I'm going to try to simplify as much as I can. Some of it is built on what we had already studied in chapter five, because in chapter five, remember we had, you know, the writer had talked about Melchizedek and we started our discussion of this uh, high priest that was uh, greater than all of the earthly high priests and how Jesus was modeled after him or, or, you know, was a a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so we're going to build on that. There was a little segue between chapter five and chapter six, where the writer was like, look, you guys aren't mature enough. There's a danger of immaturity here. Wake up, grow up so that you can sustain the truth. And so, and so he had taken a break from speaking about Melchizedek, although it was his heart to talk more about him. Well, now we're going to revisit that and then compare Jesus to the Old Testament in a couple of different areas. And so let me read a little, uh, actually, let me read a few verses and then sort of give you a um, sort of summarize. Uh, really three of the points are focused on chapter seven, and then we'll get into chapter eight with the fourth point being a focus on the uh, new covenant. All right. So that's sort of where I'm coming today. And so we can be confident. You and I can be confident because Jesus is better, better than who? Well, here we'll start with, uh, he is better than Melchizedek. All right. So that's point number one. He is better than Melchizedek. Therefore, I can approach him with confidence. Remember the high priest, what is the role of the high priest? The priest was a person given the responsibility to get other people to God. When you really think about the function of a priest, especially in the Old Testament, but even now, I mean, the function of a priest is to, uh, of course, again, this, I'm not, you know, obviously now we approach God through Jesus Christ, but traditionally when people think of what a priest is, and in the Old Testament, the function of a priest was to be a person who was given the responsibility to get other people to God. That was his job. And so the high priest had like in the Old Testament was like the leader of all of the priests. And he had the immense responsibility of bringing all of the people. And once a year, he would go in and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And they had to do this over and over again. And we see the pattern in the Old Testament over and over again. And so and so we're going to dig into the Melchizedek concept again in a minute, in case you missed it in the previous lessons. But we're going to, as we start reading chapter seven, look at this first point, which is Jesus. He is better than Melchizedek. Therefore, I can approach him with confidence. Remember, we can approach God with confidence because we have a high priest. And that's what we're going to look into. All right. So I want you to follow along. I know I'm breaking it down very simply, but it's a complicated passage. So I want you to be very clear on where we're going with this concept. And so chapter seven, it says this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, by the way, Salem short for Jerusalem, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, little footnote, there's only three, four technically references to Melchizedek in the Bible. Despite the fact that there are very few verses that talk about him, he holds an immense uh, uh, perspective of scripture and, and, and substance, substance of scripture. So it's not always how much you write, but, but this, there's a lot of weight on him. All right. Four passages. First is in Genesis 14, and this is what they're referring to now. What the writer in chapter 7 is referring to is referring to what's happening, what the story in, in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24. You can read it later, but I mentioned it before. I'll, uh, you, we'll read it in a second, and I'll give you a summary of it. But basically, that's the main passage. And then Psalm 110 references 
Jesus being uh, after the order of Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews, we saw in chapter uh, five references to him and then now chapter seven. This is it, basically. This is this is the heart in, in the New Testament of what is mentioned about Melchizedek. Again, a small amount of information, but huge weight in terms of the implications of it. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, it says returning, uh, you know, met, uh, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. This is the slaughter of the kings after Lot, the nephew of Abraham, was caught by the kings. He was living in Sodom, you know, that whole Sodom and Gomorrah before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so Lot had already split off his uncle. He gets caught by the kings. Abraham goes and retrieves them with 300 soldiers and they win the battle. It's incredible. It's a God thing. And then it says, and to him, Abraham. So now after the war, they win, they get all the goods, you know, the, the, what do you call it from the war? And, uh, and, and to him, to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, sort of a tithe. So why would Abraham tithe to Mel Melchizedek? Well, because Melchizedek was greater. He sort of, now, some people, by the way, uh, have, have com some commentaries, have identified Melchizedek as a um, Christophany. Like a, 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 in the Old Testament, there are some commentators that say that Melchizedek is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. But in fact, many commentators do not agree with that and solid uh, commenta co you know, commentaries that say, no, it is not a, um, a Melchizedek is not a, a necessarily a Christophany, a, a Christ in the, f f you know, showing up to Abraham in the Old Testament, but indeed is simply a type of Christ. And I tend to agree with that. He is a type of Christ. And we're going to sort of, again, look at, at how, what kind of type of Christ and, and, and why that this is important. Because remember, Jesus is better than the high priest has been one of the elements as we've looked at. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than the old, you know, the old Testament. The whole point was to convince the people of Israel who revered Abraham and revered Melchizedek. That was what they believed was the greatest. And now he's making this argument that Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek as a type. And so, and so to Abraham, uh, to Melchizedek, Abraham, to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. Verse two, he is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he's also King of Salem. So uh, this is important, okay? Um, this, his name is significant, by the way. His name is significant, and, and the, the way that it is presented, first he is the King of Righteousness, then he is the King of Peace. It is not an accident. Nothing in the Word of God is an accident. We are given righteousness first, and because of righteousness, we can have peace. Again, Think about every, you don't get peace before righteousness. Righteousness first and then peace. How do you get righteousness? Well, we know through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, we're going to make our way there. But again, uh, the type of Melchizedek, when you look at actually his name, so in terms of sub points for point number one, um, his uh, his position, so you're thinking about how Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Well, his position is significant. He is both king and priest. For this Melchizedek, in verse 1, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Now, this was unusual. In the Old Testament, you were either priest or you were king. Usually, you were not both and. But Melchizedek was greater uh, than the rest of the high priests that were earthly. And, and he was both priest and high king. And then, so his position is significant. His name is significant. He's both king of righteousness and king of Salem. First righteousness, then peace. That is king of peace. And then verse three, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Remember, he's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. And uh, uh, having there neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues uh, a priest forever. He doesn't, he's always a priest, always. So remember, Jesus is, 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 is after the line of Melchizedek. He's not a high priest like the human high priest, but he follows this line, which is this idea that he's eternal. He is worthy. He can be a priest for everyone always. And so, um, verse four, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, 
Okay, Abraham was great. They all believed Abraham was great. See how great this man, Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. That's the word I was looking for, spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So who Abraham is giving a tithe to Melchizedek, so therefore who's the inferior, who's the superior? He, basically the writers say, you have to conclude that Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. He's making a point here because remember Jesus is after the the, the line of, of of he's he's in the line of Melchizedek. And so in verse um, eight, in the one case tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Remember eternal. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. He wasn't even born yet, Levi, right? And so verse 11, we'll keep build, building on that a little. Um, well, well let me, let, actually, let me, let me wrap up this, he's better than Melchizedek concept. So his position is significant. His name is significant. His history is significant. He's without genealogy. He has no beginning, no end. And then his authority is undisputed. He is greater than Abraham, the inferior and the superior. So his authority is undisputed. Now we're going to kind of keep reading and build on the second idea that's going to grow out of this, which is not just that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. And by the way, if you are looking at your outline, this is all making sense. If you're not, you can follow Irina's notes there uh, on the board where you can also be, be jotting down things and, and whatnot. So number two, he is better than the law. Now we're going to move into this discussion that Jesus is better than the law. Therefore, we can lean on his grace. So in every sentence, I have sort of uh, a fact that Jesus is better than the law. What does that mean? But we can lean on his grace. And we're going to play this out now in the next few verses, 11 through maybe 20, 25. And so, so let's just kind of keep working through this passage, which if you have read it on your own, you may have been like, what does this mean? Well, we're going to try to figure it out. So now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law. So, so the point of the Levitical priesthood was to give people the law. Why did they need the law? Because um, that's what they aimed for. And so they needed to obey the law. Their obedience was, uh, you know, was sort of, was, was, that was what the language that they understood. Moses gave the law in the New Testament. Jesus came and he fulfilled the law, right? And so the relationship in the Old Testament was with the law. And so every year, why would they offer sacrifices? Because they couldn't keep the law. It was, it was well known that you, could, you couldn't keep the, the law. Therefore, you needed a priest, that line, the Levitical priesthood, to offer a sacrifice on your behalf. And they would kill the lamb and the Passover lamb. And that lamb that was a perfect, unblemished lamb. By the way, I teach about that a lot in the upcoming study in February that's going to release called Through the Desert. I break this down for you guys even more. But but so those priests in the Old Testament, their job was to offer sac. You know, they would take the animal, they would kill it, and then the high priest would offer a priest that was even more um, atoning. And so and so and he would like you you like. They would tie a string to the priest when he would go into the Holy of Holies, which is remember in the in the in the Ark, uh, the Temple, and the Ark of the Covenant. They the the, the holiest seat was the, the inside most place of the of the temple, and that is where they would meet the presence of God. And so the priest would tie a string because he had to follow you know everything to the T, and then he would go in to offer the sacrifice after, and then and then if he. Uh, was not found to be, you know, following those rules. He might die, and then they would pull him out. And like, so it was, it was a big deal, and, and everybody understood that. Well, now we're going to be freed from the law. We're going to see how Jesus is better than the law. And so, but this is sort of the background to this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest 
to arise after the order of Melchizedek. The point is you can't, you can't be perfect. Nobody can do the law. None of us. Look at the Ten Commandments. No one, no one cannot covet ever. No one cannot lie ever. All of us are sinful, right? And so, and so there's no perfection, right? Jesus alone is perfect. And so he's saying, if perfection had been attainable, we would need another priest. But he says, uh, that what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So Aaron, earthly priest, Melchizedek, eternal godly priest, right? Jesus after Melchizedek, everybody else after Aaron, right? And so uh, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So now we're going to have a change in the priesthood and that Jesus is, a, is, is a, he's, he functions like a high priest. And so uh, there is necessary change of the law. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are now, they're quoting the Old Testament, you're a priest, this is from Psalm 110, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is about Jesus, that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, the law is set aside now, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law put aside because it was exhausting and, and you couldn't live up to it. So we needed a savior to free us, to fulfill the law and then free us from the law. So now again, you're contrasting how Jesus is better than the law. This is awesome. And, and good news for us, for on, the one, for on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near unto God. Uh, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. All right, let's stop for a minute. Jesus is better than the law. All right. Therefore I can lean on his grace. See, the law was destructible. It wasn't perfect. Grace is not. It's indestructible. The law was hopeless. We're told we have hope because of course it was hopeless because a constant state of defeat. Some of us in the New Testament, though we understand that we're saved by grace, still have a tendency to live by the law, right? Think about it in your life. I, I get caught in this all the time. Some of it is, is how I was brought up in a church that maybe valued the law. And, 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 and again, not that there's, you know, obviously, the, you know, God is holy and we want to obey him, but, but we sometimes equate our obedience, like we start thinking, like, if I am good, God will be good to me back. So we, so we understand we're saved by grace. We try to live our life in the flesh by works, by the law. And it's exhausting. Have you ever caught yourself just exhausted? You, you sin and you go, oh, God's not going to answer my prayers this week because I've sinned. Listen, man, we're going to sin. We're saved by grace. We, we want to grow from sinning. This is the point of fixing our eyes on Jesus. But the reality is that, that the, living the Christian life by the law, A, it's, it's, not, it's not the way that God intended it. B, it is an insult to the sacrifice of Christ. C, it's impossible. It's exhausting. Many of us, that's why we're exhausted. That's why we don't find ourselves near to God because we are relying on the law. We think if I do enough right, God will give me what I want. That is the law. If I do my part, God will do his. That's the law. Grace says God's already given me everything I need in Christ Jesus. I can trust him to provide exactly what I need. Do you see the difference? And so intellectually, even though you might be a follower of Jesus and following Jesus in, you know, you understand Jesus died for your sins. I want you to really think about that. Are you living your Christian life by grace or are you still obeying the law, thinking that, 
that, that, that God's going to punish you because you've stepped out of line. That's the law. God's already absorbed, you know, the punishment of our sins has already been absorbed in Christ. That's grace. And so the law is hopeless. Grace gives hope. No matter what you've done, where you've been, how your life has been. Maybe today you failed miserably and you come under the weight of condemnation. Listen, there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. That is not a license to sin. Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers, God forbid. How can we who fix our eyes on Jesus, love Jesus, continue in a pattern of sin when we know what happened to Jesus on the behalf of our sins? And so obedience become an offering of joy and offering of worship to a Savior who's given us everything. So the law is hopeless. Grace gives hopes. The law separates, whereas grace draw near, draws near. And we're going we're gonna to see as we move into discussion of the new covenant how that here, I the last verse I read in verse 22 said, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's He is the reason for the better covenant. And, and that's everything for us because it draws us near to God. And we'll, we'll pick that up in a minute. So, so far we're talking about how Jesus is better. Better than who? Better than Melchizedek. Um, better than the law. And now we're going to move into he's better than the sacrifice. I'm sorry. He's better than any other sacrifice. He's better than any other sacrifice. And we're going to get into the next few verses highlighting this. Therefore, you go, what's the implication of that? He is better than any sacrifice, a colon, or therefore I am forgiven once and for all. You are forgiven once and for all if you have put your trust in Jesus. Now, so let's read these verses. So I've given you the point first so that you can sort of absorb what we're going to go into. All right. I hope this is helping. And so verse 23 or let me read verse 22 first and through. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Uh, there was a certain number of years that they could be in office. Uh, but, but now contrast, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Remember, he's a, he's a uh, priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has no beginning and no end. He's eternal. Consequently, so what's the implication of, implication of that? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We've already, in a, earlier verses in chapter 4, we talked about Jesus making intercession for us. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, we talked Jesus, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Think about that. Jesus, who, who we've been focused on, who doesn't lie, who's faithful, who's in control, who's better than the Old Testament, better than Melchizedek, better than the, the law, better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than the priesthood. Think about that. Uh, that's who's making intercession for us. Wow. He's at the right hand of God right now as we speak. He's sitting at the right hand of God. That's a position of honor. That's a position of authority. That is a position of, of grace for us. So it says, verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. Remember the Old Testament? They had to find a perfect lamb for Passover to give a sacrifice. You can just get all the way back to, to the story of Moses. And the, after they left Egypt, the night they were going to leave Egypt, that was the instructions of the lamb. Again, in the upcoming study that I'm doing through the desert, I will talk about that so much. I love studying this. I, I love that story, all of it, how everything just fits, basically. It's like a puzzle and, and a divine puzzle and, and how God brings it all together. And so, so we're told here how he's unstained. Uh, we've talked about Jesus in Hebrews being made perfect perfect through suffering. He's perfect and he's never sinned. He's perfect in every way. And so he's separated from sinners and exalted, verse 26, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. He's sinless. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins. He has no sins. And then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself, he is the perfect love of God 
who shed his blood to make atonement for our sins. Think about that. I think we talked about that in chapter two also. See how it all fits together? This is a brilliant, brilliant book. I mean, the word of God is brilliant, but just Hebrews is so awesome, right? It brings it all together. How can you not be excited about this stuff? All right, so so basically, uh, this verse is just such a, such a, Circle it if you are, have ever wondered about your salvation. You know, we talked last week in chapter six about you know this concept: you can you lose your salvation. And we were told in chapter seven, you uh, can since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We'll hit back that topic later on in chapter nine of Hebrews. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And so Jesus better than Melchizedek, better than law. And now he's better than any other sacrifice. There is no one, nothing can compare to Jesus. He is the sacrifice. Because of that, we, you and I are forgiven once for all. But how? When we, uh, when we surrender to him, right? Consequently, he's able to save to the other, he, he, verse uh, 25, critical. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost who? Those who draw near to God through him. You cannot draw near to God through any other way in Timothy, uh, one of the first or second Timothy, it says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So you might say, well, uh, you know, man, I, I was brought up to believe that my good works can bring me to God. You're wrong. You're wrong. The word of God uh, teaches that uh, you can only draw near to God through Jesus. You go, well, well I come from a different religion and you might teach that, but I teach this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Uh, this is the divide. This is why people hate the teachings of Christ. They like Jesus, but when he starts talking about the exclusivity of his teaching, everybody says, "No, man, I'm not into that." And they judge Christians who talk about exclusivity. Look, we're not being exclusive. This is the teaching of Jesus. There's only one perfect sacrifice for our sins, and it is an act of grace and an act of love. And uh, if you don't uh, come to him, uh, verse 25, he's able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Have you done that? Have you received Jesus Christ for your sins? Or are you still trying to impress God with the law? The law will get you nowhere. The law is done. Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Go read the Beatitudes. That's the point of the Beatitudes. But then, of course, the perfect sacrifice on the cross of Calvary for you and for me. And so we're given this freedom. We have an intercessor. And so uh, some thoughts about point number three how Jesus is better than any other sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice whose blood, whose blood was shed for us. And again, we're going to keep digging into that as in the next couple of weeks when we get into chapter 9. We'll, we'll deepen that understanding. And then uh, he is the faithful intercessor who sits at the right hand of God. Again, the reminder that we have a Savior who is for us, speaking to God on our behalf. What burden are you carrying today? It might be I, We have burdens in my family, in our life, that we've been carrying for decades we haven't seen answers yet. They're hard. They're heavy. Every year you go, what now? Listen, there is a Savior who, as we speak, is making intercession for us. He's doing it for you. He's doing it for me. You go, man, I don't see it. I don't feel it. Listen, by faith, it's happening. What we see, we look at our life, we say that's 50 years is such a long time. To God, 50 years is nothing. We've got an eternity ahead of us. Listen, our whole lives, you might live to be 100. That entire 100 years is it's like a second in the eyes of the Lord. And we forget that we've got eternity ahead of us. Compared to eternity, 50, 100 years is nothing. And so there's a Savior right now who's uh, speaking on your behalf to the Father. He is the everlasting sacrifice whose blood alone has power to save. He is more than a copy of things to come. He is eternity. And so uh, he is better than any other sacrifice. Listen, if you are like the Jewish people have been felt the, the pressure of persecution, maybe people in your family, in your life, in your workplace don't understand you. Maybe you're even in a religion, in a church, in a 
in a non-church religion that doesn't teach these things as you understand the scriptures. Maybe you landed here accidentally as you understand or go read it for yourself. I'm not, I'm reading, we've read every verse here. I'm not making this up. You, you see it, you read it. And, and, and if the spirit of God is using his word to draw you to himself, give your life to him, um, stand on his truth and have all of the confidence, just like the writer of Hebrews is telling them, you've got confidence, not in what we say, not in what I teach, not in what your church teaches, but what the word of God says and in the authority of Jesus Christ. And so let's move into chapter eight, which is the last point, which is we'll spend the next 10 minutes here. He is the better covenant. Now we're gonna move into what we've already hinted about. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now chapter eight is gonna be on that. So I'm gonna read chapter eight. He's the better covenant. Therefore, what is the implication? I can enjoy a closer walk with him. This is about intimacy. This is about personal relationship. When people, Christians sometimes say, I have a personal relationship with Christ. What do they mean? We're going to look into it. This is the promise of a new covenant that allows us to have intimacy with Jesus, which every one of us, every heart longs for. We think that that intimacy will be fulfilled in a human relationship, but you know, you've had these relationships. You might have been intimate for a week, a year, a decade, and eventually it fades and you find I'm still needy. And deep in my soul is a deep desire for something, someone. And it's because Christ has put that longing in your heart and it can only be answered through Jesus Christ, who's the mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant. So here we go. Now the point of all this, so this is chapter eight, verse one, the, the point, so he's leading up. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Okay, this is, I love, he's like, let me summarize. Okay, if you don't understand, let me, let me, let me restate. Now, the point is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. They don't have to go anymore to a tabernacle, to the Ark of the Covenant, to set up a tent that moves along. You don't have to do that. Why? For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Remember the Old Testament, the whole point of the Old Testament was to offer a shadow, a copy of what was to come. It wasn't, the Old Testament was, was simply to wet our taste and say, here's what it's going to look like. This is why Jesus spoke with such judgment against the religious leaders because it was playing out in front of them. They had waited for centuries for the Messiah to come and everything that was predicted in the Old Testament was happening and he couldn't see it. And they fought him and... And he had hard words to say to them the week before, oh, throughout his ministry, but the week before the cross. And I just did a, a podcast on She Reads Truth covering the week before the death of Jesus and the Olivet Discourse and, and Christ's words to the religious leaders and his condemning their hypocrisy. And it is, it is convicting. And it's a passage of scripture that sometimes, again, their heart, some passages of scripture are hard to understand, but you need to wrap your mind around, why are they there? Why are they there? And uh, because we miss it, some of us... We, we get so focused on the shadow, the copy, and we miss the truth in front of us. And so the verse, um, a verse if I can see this clearly here, the verse five, we, were, we caught off. So they serve a copy of the shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Moses was 40 days up on the mountain. God gave him instructions of how to build the temple and he came down. And so he was instructed to follow the instructions. That's what he's talking about here. But as it is, verse six, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, uh, than the old uh, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds, remember he's speaking to the people of Israel who were hanging on to the old, but he said, man, if it was better, you need to get, replace it. But it wasn't perfect. It was just a, a, a foreshadowing of what was to come. And so now, um, 
verse uh, 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming. Now he's quoting from the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of and with the house of Judah. This is from Jeremiah chapter 35, 34, 35. Uh, and we'll get to it in a sec. Um, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. We'll know him in our hearts. This is the our spirit, our conscious will know from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so he's, he's, he's reminding the people, again, the Jewish people now listening, they're in a culture where they're tempted to go back to their old ways. They want to go back to the tabernacle instead of the community of believers that was gathering who had put their life in Christ because they were being persecuted for leaving their old culture and teaching. And, uh, and, and, and the writer of Hebrews is reminding the Holy Spirit through the writer is reminding them, uh, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be shaken. You're on the right path. Jesus is better. He's given us a new covenant. And the very teachings of the Old Testament point to that. So Jeremiah is a good place for you to spend some time in chapter 30. Um, uh, well, 30, 30, uh, uh, five, I think it is. I'm trying to find the exact place. Sorry. Uh, but, oh, I'm sorry. 31. Chapter 31 of Jeremiah is where he uh, kind of leads up the entire, you know, the Old Testament really points to it to a number of places, but probably the clearest teaching on the new covenant is in Jeremiah read chapter 31, which is one of my favorite chapters, how it starts. It talks about the relationship that God had with his people. And if you uh, study the covenants of the Bible, there's many good Bible study on them. I think Jen Wilkin has got some good stuff on God of covenant and covers, you know, K. Arthur has done a lot of studies on, on covenant. So if you have any interest in that, many pastors have taught really good stuff on it. But basically, um, you know, the covenant was started with Abraham. Of course, even with Adam, there was a covenant, but then Abraham and Noah and, you know, you or Noah came before Abraham. But the point is, uh, there, there was a reiteration of the covenant then the davidic covenant and eventually replaced by the new covenant so all mediated how by jesus who is better than the old covenant because he mediates this new covenant which leads to his being uh, the precious uh, sacrifice his sheds his blood for us and so and so uh, about the new covenant uh, just some thoughts um so uh it is unconditional it is internal it is internal it is personal and it is merciful. Merciful. It is uh, the means for us to no longer need to rely on a priest. Uh, remember the Old Testament, the priests used to put the word of God like on a, they would put it in a phylactery on their foreheads and they would walk around with it because they wanted it to be with them always. And now God is saying in the new covenant, you don't even need to do that anymore because God's word now is implanted in your heart. We have a personal relationship with Christ where Christ comes in his Holy Spirit. Christ lives in us. And I, mean, I don't understand that. Neither do I, except I've experienced it. I know it. We have a conscious now that longs to obey God. And, and there's a sense in our, if you have haven't given your life to Jesus, there's a sense of conviction when you see sinful things. There's a sense of morality in us. There's an understanding that I need salvation. You might not agree, you know, people who haven't put their life in their hope in Christ might not agree on how to get to salvation. It doesn't make, you know, it's what well, the point is. Every one of us is wired to understand that there is something better and bigger and 
more perfect than the brokenness that we see on this earth, the brokenness that we see in our lives. And that answer is in Jesus. And so Jesus is the better covenant. I can enjoy a closer walk with him. He is uh, the better sanctuary. So we no longer need to go into the temple. He, the temple becomes our bodies. Uh, yeah, um, I don't believe we'll, uh, yeah, maybe later on we'll talk about how we are the temple of the living God. But Paul the Apostle teaches us again and again that the, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and so he's the better sanctuary and invites us to draw near. He wants more intimacy with us and paid the price to guarantee it. And he wants more of us than we think is possible. And we'll do what it takes to make sure we understand it. I love that. Uh, Jesus is worthy of my first and of my best. Uh, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? This might be a, a good place to start wrapping things up. Uh, do you have that intimacy with the Lord? Um, first question is, have you received him into your heart? I mean, the point of 7 and 8, chapter 7 and 8, is to show our need for a Savior, ultimately, and our gift of a Savior. And so have you put your hope in him? Have you, have you asked him to save you of your sins? And if not, why don't you do it today? Whether you're listening on the podcast later, if we're running this later, or whether you're watching this and you've never heard me teach before, it doesn't matter that I'm the teacher. I'm, I'm, I don't bring much to the equation. I'm just trying to communicate best I can the truth of God. But I know that you know, because I know that I know uh, that we need a Savior, that I need a Savior. And so will you acknowledge that and keep your pride from standing in the way of you humbling yourself and saying, okay, God, I see it. I see it clearly. I never understood it before. My church won't save me. Religion won't save me. The law won't save me. My parents won't save me. My good works won't save me. Only Jesus and his perfect sacrifice on the cross is able to bring me this intimate relationship with Christ where I am forgiven. And now I obey not to earn his favor, but to express his worship. And, uh, and maybe you do know him, by the way, like I do. And maybe you have been a while since you felt intimacy with Jesus. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that the way to intimacy is by grace? Christ does live in you if you're a follower of Jesus. And so are you giving him ample space to be the Lord of your life? Uh, are you honoring him with uh, all that you are? And uh, uh, I can't find now, of course, I, I just thought about this thing that I keep in my Bible and I must have here it is. I'm going to place it out here. But I always uh, uh, love this little reminder in my Bible. And, and it says this, which is uh, the amount of power, and I would say the amount of peace, the amount of joy that you experience to live a victorious, triumphant Christian life is directly proportional to the freedom you give to the Holy Spirit to be the Lord of your life. And so are you doing that today? Well, that's the end of our time together, and I'm so glad you checked in. I hope that you found this study useful. Listen, I'd love for you to come back next week. We drop new episodes every week, and we're going to continue with the Hebrew study. Hey, why don't you use the time during the week to read through what we just uh, studied? Why don't you go back and read from Hebrews and on and on, and uh, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Uh, let us uh, lean into what God has uh, is doing in our lives. And uh, before I leave you, let me remind you that you can check out drlinabook.com and find out all about my new book or just go to Amazon and put in my name or the title of the new book. Don't tell anyone you're reading this. I think you're going to love this book. Hey, if you've read it, why don't you go to Amazon and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, do so. Uh, it will be an easy way to be reminded every week that there's a new episode. Hey, again, thanks for being here. We're praying for you. If you want to leave me a message, do it at lena at livingwithpower.org. And uh, with that in mind, enjoy the rest of your day. Take care and know that God loves you.